The House is in recess this week. The Senate will be in session from Monday through Thursday. Last week in the House, they came back to work on Tuesday. They took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 963, the Forced Arbitration Injustice Repeal Act of 2022, also known as the FAIR Act of 2022, and H.R. 2116, the Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act of 2021, also known as the Crown Act of 2021. The FAIR Act, quote, prohibits a pre-dispute arbitration agreement from being valid or enforceable if it requires arbitration of an employment, consumer, antitrust, or civil rights dispute. The Crown Act prohibits discrimination based on a person's hair texture or hairstyle if that style or texture is commonly associated with a particular race or national origin. Then the House took up and passed three more bills under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 7108, the Suspending Normal Trade Relations with Russia and Belarus Act, under suspension of the rules. That bill passed by a vote of 424 to 8. Then the House took up H.R. 963, the FAIR Act. After adopting an amendment, the House voted to pass H.R. 963 by a vote of 222 to 209. On Friday, the House took up H.R. 2116, the Crown Act. The bill passed by a vote of 235 to 189, and then they were done. This week in the House, they're in recess. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday. They voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Shalanda D. Young to be director of the Office of Management and Budget. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate took up S.J. Res. 37. That's Senator Rand Paul's Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval against the Biden transportation mask requirement. That passed by a vote of 57 to 40, with no fewer than eight Democrats crossing party lines to join in the bipartisan vote. For those keeping score at home, those eight Democrats were Michael Bennett of Colorado, Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, Mark Kelly of Arizona, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Jackie Rosen of Nevada, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, and John Tester of Montana. Cortez Masto, Kelly, and Hassan are three of the four most vulnerable Senate Democrats running for re-election this year. Then, by voice vote, the Senate confirmed the following people to the following positions. Keenan Azma to be a member of the National Council of the Arts for a term expiring September 3, 2024. Constance Hess-Williams to be a member of the National Council of the Arts for a term expiring September 20, I'm sorry, September 3, 2026. Christopher Cowie Morgan to be a member of the National Council of the Arts for a term expiring September 3, 2024. Jake Shimabakuro to be a member of the National Council of the Arts for a term expiring September 3, 2024. Catherine Cars Matthew to be a member of the National Council of, on the Humanities for a term expiring January 26, 2026. Rachel Jacobson to be an Assistant Secretary of the Army. And Beth Von Schock to be Ambassador at Large Global Criminal Justice at the Department of State. By means of a unanimous consent request, Senator Marco Rubio's bill to end daylight savings time passed. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Jacqueline Scott Corley to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of California, Fred W. Slaughter to be a U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California, Ruth Bermudez Montenegro to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California. 
Victoria Marie Calvert to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Georgia, Julie Rebecca Rubin to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Maryland, Hector Gonzalez to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of New York, John H. Chun to be a U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Washington, Sarah Elizabeth Garati to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Georgia, Georgette Kessner to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of New Jersey, Christina D. Silva to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Nevada, Anna Rachel Trom, I'm sorry, Ann Rachel Trom to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Nevada, and Andrew M. Luger to be a U.S. Attorney for the District of Minnesota for the term of four years. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Scott Corley to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of California and Fred W. Slaughter to be a U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California. Then the Senate voted to invoke, to invoke cloture on the nomination of Allison J. Nathan to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And then by voice vote, the Senate voted to confirm Bidta N. Becker to be a member of the National Council on the Arts. Gretchen Gonzalez-Davidson to be a, a member of the National Council on the Arts, Vanessa Northington Gamble to be a member of the National Council on the Humanities, and David Anthony Hadju to be a member of the National Council on the Humanities. And then the Senate was done. This week in the Senate, they'll return today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the motion to proceed to H.R. 4521, the often renamed America Competes Act, that's the U.S.-China Competitiveness Bill. If and when the Senate passes the bill, the House and Senate will go to an old-fashioned conference committee to reconcile the two competing versions of the bill. In addition, though Majority Leader Schumer has not filed cloture on the bills yet, I wouldn't be surprised to see action on two bills that recently came out of the House. A bill to remove permanent normal trade relations status from Russia and Belarus that we just talked about, and a bill to ban oil imports from Russia. Idaho Republican Senator Mike Crapo, the ranking Republican on the Senate Finance Committee, says that even though the two bills came out of the House separately, he thinks they should be combined into one bill and passed quickly. Now to the Breyer replacement search. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings have already begun. The entire day today will be spent with opening statements from Judge Jackson and the 22 members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Tuesday and Wednesday will be spent with senators questioning her, with each senator allowed to question her for up to 50 minutes. Thursday will be spent with senators questioning outside witnesses. I don't expect there will be major fireworks here. Judge Jackson, if confirmed, would be replacing Justice Stephen Breyer. So the ideological and partisan balance on the court would remain at five to three to one, with the one being obviously Chief Justice John Roberts. Nevertheless, I do expect Republicans to take the opportunity afforded them to raise key issues from her background. Notably, watch key Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, including Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham, Ben Sass, and Marsha Blackburn to argue that she is soft on crime and possibly even soft on child porn offenders. More on COVID funding. You'll recall when last we talked that Speaker Pelosi had decided at the last minute to remove the White House's COVID funding supplemental from the $1.5 trillion omnibus government spending bill. She had done that because she felt backed into a corner by members of her own caucus who had revolted against her plan to fund $15 billion by clawing back appropriated but unspent funds left over from earlier COVID funding requests. That left her with a problem. 
just because Democrats didn't want to pay for the COVID funding stream didn't mean the Biden administration didn't still want the money. So she put on her thinking cap and sat down to try to figure out a way to fund the request in hopes she could put a new funding bill on the floor last week. She did not succeed. She has yet to figure out a way to pay for the COVID funding in a way that will generate at least 10 Republican votes in the Senate, because without that, she's up the creek without a paddle. Interestingly, just because she failed to come up with a funding stream doesn't mean she didn't come up with anything new. In fact, she did come up with a new idea. The problem is her new idea is really a very, very old Democrat idea. To wit, spend more money. At her regular Thursday press conference last week, the speaker revealed she had advised the Biden administration to double up on its request for COVID funding. Quote, I think they should double what they asked for, because even when they were asking for like some $20 billion, that was only going to get us to June. What I've said to the administration is you must ask for more because we need more. And you can't expect money, this bill, to turn around just like that because the legislative process takes time. We want it to be bipartisan. We need it to be paid for. And so let's just go for a bigger chunk, end quote. At week's end, the congressional Democrat leadership still had not figured out how to fit, how to fit the square peg into the round hole. And that will be an additional call to action this week. Please call your member of the House and say, no more COVID funding. We're done throwing money at COVID. Now to illegal immigration. On Tuesday, National Review reported that according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection data released that day, U.S. border agents encountered 164,973 migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border during the month of February. And that number represents a 60% increase over the number from February of 2021, just one year earlier. Since the start of the current fiscal year last October, U.S. border agents have encountered at least 150,000 migrants attempting to enter the United States every single month. Now to an oldie but goodie, Hunter Biden's emails. The good news is that last Thursday, the New York Times acknowledged that emails found on Hunter Biden's laptop in the fall of 2020 were, in fact, authentic. The bad news is that it took the New York Times a year and a half to come to that conclusion. And the worst news is that even in the article in which the Times referred to the emails, one had to read 23 paragraphs before finally finding the acknowledgement of their authenticity in the 24th paragraph. More on the Iran nuclear deal. Last Monday, 49 Senate Republicans signed a statement directed at the Biden administration saying they would not support the revived Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the Iran nuclear deal. Quote, by every indication, said the statement, the Biden administration appears to have given away the store. The administration appears to have agreed to lift sanctions that were not even placed on Iran for its nuclear activities in the first place. But instead, because of its ongoing support for terrorism and its gross abuses of human rights. The nuclear limitations in this new deal appear to be significantly less restrictive than the 2015 nuclear deal, which was itself too weak and will sharply undermine U.S. leverage to secure an actually longer and stronger deal. What is more, the deal appears likely to deepen Iran's financial and security relationship with Moscow and Beijing, including through arms sales, end quote. 
Later in the week, the Biden administration caved on Russia's ridiculous demand from a week ago. To it, the Biden administration assured Russia that the proposed Iran nuclear deal will, quote, immunize Moscow from the sanctions the administration otherwise portrays as crushing Moscow for its barbaric, unprovoked war against Ukraine. So Russia will not only reap desperately needed revenue, it will also continue to develop the nuclear program of jihadist Iran, according to Andy McCarthy at National Review. More specifically, as reported by the Washington Free Beacon, quote, Rosatom, Russia's leading energy company, has a $10 billion contract with Iran's atomic energy organization to expand Tehran's Bushehr nuclear plant. Russia and the Biden administration confirmed on Tuesday that the new nuclear agreement includes carve-outs that will waive sanctions on both countries so that Russia can make good on this contract, end quote. In other words, while the Biden administration continues to brag about what it calls the crushing sanctions imposed against Iran for its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, it also continues to count on Russia to carry its diplomatic water with Iran and further waives the so-called crushing sanctions against Russia to ensure that Russia and Iran can still do a $10 billion nuclear deal. More on Russia and Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has entered its fourth week and still the Biden administration allows Russian dictator Vladimir Putin to dictate in what non-Russian skies fighter planes that take off from NATO air bases will be allowed to fly. I do not recall any previous American president acceding to the demands of any previous Russian or Soviet leader and allowing non-Russian airspace to be closed off to warplanes taking off from NATO air facilities. And I hope I do not see any future American president acceding to the same demands. On Tuesday, the White House revealed plans for, pride, for President Biden to travel to Brussels to meet with NATO leaders on March 24. He will also join a European Council meeting. On Friday, Biden will travel to Warsaw for a bilateral meeting with the President of Poland. As to whether or not he might make a surprise visit to Ukraine, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki used a careful locution in her tweet announcing the visit to Poland. She said, quote, there are no plans to travel into Ukraine, unquote, which is not the same as saying the president will not go into Ukraine. I think the odds are one in three that President Biden slips into Ukraine for a quick pit stop. On Wednesday morning, Ukrainian President Zelensky virtually addressed members of the House and Senate of the United States. Citing Martin Luther King Jr., among others, Zelensky pressured the American lawmakers to step up military assistance to his country. He wants the West to provide Polish MiG-29 fighter planes and to establish and maintain a no-fly zone over sovereign Ukrainian territory. To date, the Western allies have refused to do so, for fear that this could put Western pilots flying Western planes in direct conflict with Russian pilots flying Russian planes over Ukraine. And that's our Washington Report for this week.